Again, I want to welcome you here this morning, and we're going to continue in our series from the book of Acts, from the New Testament book of Acts, and so we're going to be taking a look at Acts 17, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to that, and I just want to uh, welcome and introduce Brent Smith. Brent's going to be coming and speaking this morning, and uh, so we're really looking forward to that. So give extra special attention. Brent just said it's too late to run away now, isn't it? I said, yup, you're here now. All right, so we'll give our attention to Brent and God's Word. And uh, we look forward to hearing from God. So Brent, welcome, and thanks for serving us this morning. Okay. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Gary told me to be myself, so I wore plaid. Thought that would help. Uh, If you're wondering why I'm speaking this morning, we're starting off on the same page at least. Uh, but a few weeks ago, it seems like a long time ago, uh, Joe asked me if I'd consider preaching this morning, and uh, I said I'd think about it, and then Gary met me sometime after and turned it more into of a command than a question, <laughs> and, uh, and here I am. So, if you don't know me, my name is Brent Smith, uh, myself and my wife Karen have been coming here for a little over two years now. We have uh, three children, Nathaniel is four, Aaliyah is two, and Peyton is ten months. So if my sentences just kind of drift off into nothing, (laughs) at least I have a reason. When I I got here, Joe asked me if I slept at all last night, and I was thinking, how is that different from any other (laughs) night? So, yes. So we're, we're starting uh, in Acts 17. We're going to start at verse 16 and carry through to the end of the chapter. Uh, I'll give you a little background first of uh, what we're looking at. Um, Paul and his buddies Silas and Timothy have been <coughs> traveling through what is now uh, Turkey and Greece. And uh, so they were in Turkey and they're kind of going up around the Aegean Sea and down into Greece. And uh, they were in Thessalonica, and they were doing, uh, spreading the gospel there, and the Jewish leaders got upset, and so they kind of gathered up all the rough, shady characters from the city and drove them out of Thessalonica. And so they went down to Berea, and they were starting to do a really good thing there, and people were being uh, converted, and then the Thessalonica thugs weren't content to leave Paul and Silas and Timothy alone, so they traveled down to Berea and they riled things up in Berea enough so that the church said, listen, Paul, we think you should probably head on out. And so Timothy and Silas stayed and Paul took off down to Athens. And so that's why when we start up here in verse 16, Paul is in Athens by himself. He's there waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch back up with them. And and that's where we'll pick up the story. So I'm going to start reading at 16. And we'll carry through to the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, 
May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, so just one thing before we go on is to remember that Paul is a very educated man. He's not uh, searching for the words to say here. He's very learned in, uh, in even the Greek poets, as we'll see. And he's been studying the Scriptures his whole life. And <clears throat> he's, he's all too ready to speak to these, these uh, philosophers in, in Athens. And notice as well how he how he kind of works his way in. He he looks at the crowd that he's speaking to and he tailors his message to get the gospel into them to relate to them. So here we go. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, including that one you just took, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of them joined Him and believed among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul is preaching along. He doesn't get to finish his sermon because as soon as he mentions the resurrection, they cut him off because they think it's foolishness. And <clears throat> so his sermon's cut short. He leaves and it says that some mocked, some wished to hear more, and some believed. And that's the response that you will receive as well when you share the gospel. Some may mock, some may ask to hear more, and others might believe. So, we're going to focus in on one verse in particular here today, and that's verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. <clears throat> A couple days ago, I asked my daughter Aaliyah what it meant to serve God. And she said, we go outside, we look up in the sky, and we say, hi God, I'll see you later at McDonald's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully we come to some different conclusions. 
today. <clears throat> so first, we need to look at uh, why this is significant that Paul is preaching this message uh, to the Athenians. Why is it significant that Paul would say that God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything? <clears throat> if you want to flip over to Philippians, we'll go Philippians 3, verse 5. And we'll look at that quick. This is Paul uh, talking about himself and it just gives a little background on uh, who Paul was. Uh, I'll just go back to the first for halfway through verse four there, so it makes a little more sense. But he says, "If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." So Paul grew up in a place called Tarsus, and he was the son of a Pharisee. He was a very, uh, Tarsus was a very uh, educated city, uh, an intellectual city, and his father was a Pharisee, and he set off in his schooling to become one as well. Uh, he would have attended a school that would have been connected to the side of the synagogue, and there he would have learned Old Testament, what is our Old Testament, over and over and over, and repeated phrases after his teacher until he not only knew the words in the verses, but he could repeat the accents and the way they said it and the phrasing. He had it all down pat. Uh, by the time he was 13, he would have mastered Jewish history, uh, the poetry of the Psalms, the writings of the prophets, probably put us to shame in many ways as, as far as how much he knew of the Scriptures. And then years later, he'd go down to Jerusalem and he'd sit at the feet of the well-known teacher Gamaliel and further learn the laws of the Pharisees and the traditions of the Pharisees. If, if uh, you don't have a clear understanding of who the Pharisees were, you can read Jesus' thoughts on the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's a very encouraging, uplifting word to them. <clears throat> where... He calls them a few names and says that they put heavy burdens on the people that they cannot carry, that they do everything to be seen by men, and they even tithe from their spice rack. So, as a Pharisee, Paul spent his whole life defending a way of salvation, a way of acceptance with God that said, if you want to be right with God and have eternal life and everlasting joy with Him, then you take the law of God you put it on like an ox puts on a yoke and you pull your own weight and show God that you're good enough to go to heaven. <clears throat> that, that was basically the life of the Pharisee. That you take the law of God, you put it on like an ox puts on a yoke and you begin pulling and showing God that you can get your way into heaven. Pulling your own weight. Paul would have laughed at the idea of salvation through faith alone and... Mercy shown to a sinner would have probably caused anger or resentment. He just did not understand salvation through faith alone. It was all about works and what you did. But then, later on in Paul's life, he begins hearing a new teaching. 
a teaching from Jesus and his followers that was contrary to what he was living. The way of getting right offered by Jesus was so different that Paul felt his entire life threatened by it. And that's why he hated the Christian cause and began persecuting it with all his might. He was not only there when they stoned Stephen earlier on in Acts, but it says that he approved of his execution. He was so against Christianity and hated the message that they brought that he could look at somebody getting hit with rocks so much that they died and approve of it. Luke also tells us that he began uttering threats and murder against Jesus' followers and was on his way up to Damascus to round up Christians, bind them, and bring them back to Jerusalem. So when we read this verse that God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything from Paul, I just want you to feel the weight with which Paul says this. It's very real to him. He knows what it's like to try to serve God as if he needed something to try to earn merit with God, and he defended it ruthlessly. So feel the significance of Paul's message here. And a lot of what Lisa and Gary said I'll be repeating, so you can just look at this as a review, a flushed out review. <clears throat> so, the first question that I ask when I read that is, well, why can't we serve God as if He needed something? And there's two things that really get in the way there. One is, is a lot bigger, and well, we'll look at both here. God's sufficiency is the first thing that gets in the way of us serving God as if He needed something. <clears throat> God's sufficiency, or also, also known as His independence, is described as this. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify Him and bring Him joy. So God's sufficiency is God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify Him and bring Him joy. So although we're not going to focus too much on that second part today, I don't want you to lose sight of it. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Just like Lisa said, God has a plan for your life. You can glorify Him. You can bring Him joy and live a very significant life. But in God's sufficiency and His independence, He does not need us for anything. So God asked Job in Job 41.11, Who has given to me that I should repay Him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is Mine. So, in fact, it's even more that God does not need us for anything. He could not need us for anything. Because if God needed us to help Him accomplish His will, He wouldn't be God anymore. And this is the difference between us and God, between the Creator and the created. And so when we think of God, we need to remember that the limitations and imperfections that we see in this world don't apply to God. It's not just that we exist and God has always existed. God exists in a greater, better, more, more full, more excellent way. It's not, not the same as the difference between a candle and the sun or a a raindrop and the ocean. It's a better quality than we have. And that's God's independence. 
He exists in a more excellent way than we do, and He needs nothing. The other thing that, that uh, keeps us from serving God as if He needed something is our sinfulness. <clears throat> the Bible tells us, just like Gary said earlier, that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not just that we've made some poor decisions in our life. It's that we've turned our back on God Almighty. We've ignored His wrath and we've even rejected His love, choosing rather to love ourselves more. I remember when I was a teenager in all my teenage wisdom as we've all had, and I don't even remember what it was, but my father gave me some advice for something. And I remember being so angry I gritted my teeth and I said, I don't need you to tell me what to do. And that's what we've all said to our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> we've looked at our, our Heavenly Father and we've said, I don't need you to tell me what to do. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So even if God could need something, surely we would not be the ones to offer our help. So, you may be asking, if I'm sinful and there's a gap between me and God, and I can't serve God to earn favor with God, then how do I gain right standing with God? What can be done? Enter Jesus. <clears throat> you see, when Paul was on his way to Damascus to imprison the Christians, Jesus shows up in a light brighter than the midday sun, knocks him blind, and takes the sinful man who hated him and persecuted his church and turns his whole life around. And that's the, the Paul that we read about today in Acts 17 as a man changed from that previous life. <clears throat> I enjoy football. I enjoy playing football. I am really, really, really good at watching football. <clears throat> That's why I come to this church, so when I hear Joe preach every second sermon about football being an idol, I can check my heart, make sure everything's in place. <clears throat> but one of my favorite times in the NFL season is the draft, when NFL teams look at the college players, decide which, which college player is, is the best, and who they can add to their team to make their team better. <clears throat> And sometimes I think we see God like an NFL scout scanning the city to see the top prospect to join his team. <clears throat> we picture him just up there looking and saying, oh, if I just had John Robertson to join my team, how much, how much greater things I could get done. But that's not the Gospel. It's not the Gospel that changed Paul's life. <clears throat> the message of Jesus that had previously filled Paul with anger and then filled him with joy was radically different from that. The Gospel isn't God looking for top prospects to serve Him and make His team better. The Gospel isn't you cleaning yourself up and working hard and doing all number of things in the hopes of catching the scout's eye. The Gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Gospel is that Jesus did not come to be served, 
but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. The Gospel is God serving us, not us serving God. What great news for our world today. That sure, our righteousness and all our good works are nothing, but Jesus' righteousness is everything. And that's what God extends to you and to me freely. John Piper often says that the Gospel is not a help-wanted sign, it's a help-available sign. And this is a message as well that Christians need to be reminded of. That God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. And when when we understand that and we apply it to our life, it does two things. First, it leaves no room in the Christian's life for pride. It leaves no room for pride in you giving your tithe. Jesus said that the Pharisees made a big show of their giving, but it was all for naught. If you write a check for thousands of dollars and give it to the church so that we can get a new building, I encourage you to do that. I don't want to hinder you you do that. But if you do that, what reason do you have to then sit back with your chest puffed and look at all you help God accomplish? The Lord could have brought a complete stranger in from the street and say, here's my wonderful building that meets all your needs and is perfectly located in the city and I'd like you to have it. and He wouldn't need your money at all. Plus, all the money you gave to the church and all the money you held back to spend on yourself came from God in the first place. He gave it to you. In the verse, for He alone gives life and breath and everything, your money would fall into the everything category. And the same goes for your time. If you give every evening to do some great service for God, Youth group, soup kitchen, Bible studies, street level, all the time thinking, look at all the great things I'm helping God with. What would the church do without me? God must be indebted for my service to Him. It's nonsense. Paul says that that He has given you life and breath and everything. So the whole time you're doing all that service to God, He's the one giving you the breath so that you can carry out that service. So who's in debt to who? And the same can be said about your mind, your resources, and your talents. The second thing that understanding this and applying it to our lives does for us is it allows God to serve us. Jesus said that He did not come to be served, but to serve. So if you're constantly working, 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 trying to earn merit with God, look at me, God, look at all the great things that I'm doing for you. You leave no room for God to come in and serve you and serve you with His grace and His joy and His peace and His love and His strength. Now you may be thinking, is the Christian life nothing but just sitting around? What about all the verses that tell us to serve God? And that's a good question to ask. I'm glad you asked it. The Bible does make it clear we should serve God. Joshua proclaims to the Israelites, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. It's on a plaque in every good Christian's home. 
And if you look at the life of Paul, how much greater things he did after his conversion, after he understood that God is not served by human hands than he did before. He spread the Gospel across most of the known world, planted churches, raised up leaders, confronted heresy, endured persecution, stoning, beating, and one more thing. Oh right, he wrote half the New Testament. So if Paul didn't stop serving after his conversion, but did greater things, how then should we serve? And if you go to 1 Peter 4.11, the answer is very clear. I love the verses that are just very clear when we have questions like that. 1 Peter 4.11, Peter says, about halfway down there, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. So it's not as if God needs you to do it, but you serve with the strength that He supplies. You are serving Him, but He is serving you the strength you need to serve Him. And God, as the giver of that strength, gets the glory and not you. And your service stays true to the Gospel that God serves. Now, sometimes we say things like serve God with the strength that He supplies and it just kind of seems, I don't know, kind of, it sounds nice, but we don't really know what it looks like in our day-to-day life. And I've got a little acronym here. I didn't, uh, I didn't make this up. I got it from a good friend of mine. We've been friends for quite some time. He does most of the talking in the relationship. His name is John Piper. <clears throat> and it's, an, it's his acronym for, for how, how to serve God. And it's called APTAT. I know it's not a word, but... I didn't make it up. Aptat. So we'll go through Aptat and it's and it's just a practical way of how to serve God uh, in a proper way, not as if he needs anything, but with the strength that he freely supplies. So A is admit. Admit. God, I can't do this on my own. I'm weak. I'm scared. I lack the wisdom to complete this task. You alone give life and breath and everything. And without your Son, Jesus, I can do nothing. Then we pray. The P is pray. God, I need your help. I pray that you would make me love as Jesus loves and work in me all that is pleasing to you. Trust. God, I trust the promise of your help and strength and guidance that you will never leave me or forsake me, that your Spirit will give me the words to say. I trust in the promises that you have provided. A is act. Act in obedience to God's Word. Don't just sit around and discuss things like we read that the Stoics and the Epicureans were doing. You have to actually use your arms, use your legs, use your mind, use your mouth for God's glory. And then after the service is done, T is thank. Thank God for whatever good comes 
and give Him the glory. So you admit in your weakness. You pray for God's help. You trust in God's promises. You act. And then you thank Him for what He has accomplished. In doing so, in serving in this way, we acknowledge our helplessness, we pray for enablement, and we trust that precisely in our serving and behind our serving, it is God who does the work. God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything, for He alone gives life and breath and everything. Therefore, let him who serves serve with the strength God supplies so that in all things it is God who gets the glory. It's true for our salvation and it's true for each day that we serve Him.